many of us have read dozens, maybe hundreds of books on them. But when we're done, there's still half of the American population left. What about women in the Civil War? We'll come back and talk about that subject with Leslie J. Gordon on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. at East Carolina University, talking today with Leslie J. Gordon, biographer of General George Pickett. Leslie, when we left off, we were talking about uh, Pickett's role in the mass hanging of Confederate deserters at Kinston, North Carolina, which is one of those events of the war that runs directly counter to the romantic image of uh, uh, magnolias and swords and flags and uh, brave charges and so on. Uh, here we have someone hanging people uh, with some doubt of their guilt, certainly, but uh, but executing people in, in a mass fashion, not what we like to think of. That's right. It, it really doesn't fit at all with the popular kind of uh, image of the Civil War, and that that's another aspect of Pickett's story that really fascinated me. Then after- There's been more attention to these kind of things, of course, within the last five or ten years, too. I think uh, the movie Cold Mountain, uh, we were talking about Killer Angels, Cold Mountain is another bit of popular culture that looks at a less than romantic aspect of the Civil War. Yes, and I've wondered, too, how much impact that movie has really had on people's perception, because it kind of came and went. I don't I don't have a sense that, you know, like my students coming into my class have seen it, um, and that's changed their, their view of things. But it, it, it really is, in that sense, a story that counters, again, the, the popular narrative then after the war, uh, Pickett goes to Canada in part to avoid prosecution for these hangings, 
and then eventually right. comes back to the United States. Uh, Grant helps him get uh, uh, a sort of free pass until he's eventually pardoned by the president. That's but after, right. as you pointed out, uh, he, he does not live that much longer after the war dies in the mid-1870s. And then Mrs. Pickett spends the rest of her many years writing and speaking essentially on his behalf and helping to create the myth of uh, Pickett's charge and the lost cause. Let me ask you this. Why do you think she was so successful at that? Why did the public buy her version of the story? That's a good question, and I really grappled with that uh, in, in writing the biography. I think there were a few things that worked in her favor. I think the very fact that she was a woman doing this publicly it was just a very different time than today. Uh, nobody was going to challenge her openly. I mean, there were people actually challenging her, but it wasn't uh, widespread. Uh, and the fact that she was a wife of a, a pretty well-known Confederate general, that, that sort of covered her, that sort of helped her. And she was careful, too. She was very deliberate about what she said. She didn't criticize Lee. She uh, promoted also this myth of the Old South with the sort of happy slaves and benevolent masters. So there was a lot there that, at the time, a lot of white Americans, North and South, really wanted to hear and really it seemed to kind of feed their own uh, need for this for this uh, romantic past. So I think that all kind of came together to help her so that she could sort of get away with what she did. It's also true that there were a lot of other women like her also similarly promoting their husbands and, and having varying versions of the truth. Uh, Libby Custer, even Helen Longstreet, uh, Longstreet's second wife, started doing this as well a little uh, later into the 20th century too. So I think, again, she was in good company, her gender helped, and even, again, the sort of mood of the country. Uh, David Blight has argued that the, the mood of the country was ripe for reconciliation by, say, 1900, but that this reconciliation had to be accomplished by giving up the ideals for which the war was fought, at least on the northern side. What do you think of that thesis? Yes, I mean, I think Blight really does a good job on focusing and just bringing the focus back to race and making us realize that uh, the myth, the romanticism of the war, it's not by accident, it's not harmless. It was part of a very deliberate agenda to put aside the hard questions about racial equality in this country that the, 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 the nation really failed at. And uh, But it, it was easier to swallow that this was a heroic story of... of White men and, and women who who did great things, and it, it just it just seemed it, like you said. I mean, there was there was this desire for reconciliation, and this desire, I think, to to kind of feel that the country was was going to move forward and not deal with these uh, these very difficult issues. One aspect of uh, Sally Pickett's strategy of, of appealing to North and South, uh, you pointed out in writing, is the story that George Pickett and Abraham Lincoln were acquainted. Uh, yes. As somebody who spends a lot of time reading uh, and writing Lincoln matters, I found that quite uh, quite an entertaining story. Do you want to refresh my memory about it? Yes. It was one of her favorites. Uh, she repeated it several times in her writings and, and in her lectures. She claimed that Lincoln and Pickett knew each other for quite a while before the war, then in fact Pickett became... Uh, acquainted a friend of Lincoln back in the 1840s 
when uh, Pickett was a, a, a young, uh, really a boy, an adolescent, visiting his uncle, who, who he did have an uncle, Andrew Johnson, who lived, not the Andrew Johnson, different one, lived in Quincy, Illinois, and that, uh, that this relationship became so close that, in fact, Lincoln helped uh, get, basically, uh, uh, get, get Pickett acceptance to West Point. And then later, as the war happened, and, uh, of course, Richmond fell, and Lincoln came to, Rich- to Richmond to visit the, the, the capital, LaSalle claimed that Lincoln personally visited her as a sort of uh, just a check on his his good friend's wife, and all this is complete fabrication. The only uh, evidence I could find uh, as far as a relationship, and this is what's so interesting about LaSalle, she never made things up whole cloth. She always had something to work from. Uh, it's it's clear that in fact Pickett's uncle and Lincoln did know each other in Quincy. Uh, Johnson was a lawyer. Uh, as well, but uh, there was nothing more than that. Nothing, nothing more than that, as far as Lincoln taking a role in Pickett's military career or, or taking this kind of extra interest in, in, the, in the notion that he would come and visit, visit LaSalle, uh, just never happened. Yeah, and we have so many accounts of Lincoln walking through the streets of Richmond that if he had done that, we would have read about it many other places. That's right. That's one of the things that, uh, in fact, the few. Uh, criticisms of, of LaSalle that I've ever found, a lot of them have to do with the Lincoln stories. And uh, yet it was, uh, George Pickett was appointed to West Point by John Todd Stewart. Is that not correct? Right. He. There's no way that, it's just the timing that the dates don't work. Lincoln wasn't uh, in Congress when when Pickett actually uh, was applying for to West Point. Right, so Lincoln didn't appoint him. Lincoln only spent one term in Congress, but exactly. Stewart did, and Lincoln and Stewart were at one time were law partners. Exactly, right. So, right. so there is something there, and you know, maybe I mean, sure, they might have even met at some point, but but there's nothing there's nothing to support any friendship. No, uh, that's, any friendship. That, that is a marvelous way she has with the truth, and to take these little fragments of evidence and uh, spin it into something much larger. Exactly. Uh, very clever. Now, I was fascinated by something you said uh, in our first segment today, that as you, you began this project, uh, the Pickett biography, as a, a military biography of George Pickett, without an intent to focus unduly on his wife, or any of his three wives for that matter, I suppose, right. uh, LaSalle Pickett being his third. But her her role was, was such that you found yourself compelled to to consider it, you made the point that you didn't want to focus unduly on her for fear of being not taken seriously as a military historian. That's right. It's one of the problems, I think, in the field of military history and in Civil War still, that um, there are very few women that actually do military history. Uh, And, you know, it's still a very male-dominated field. And uh, I also, you know, I had great respect for women's history and women's historians. I, I wasn't trained as a women's histo- his, historian, and I and I just didn't feel right you know, sort of doing doing a biography of her. And, and again, it, it just wasn't where my interest was. But what I realized was uh, maybe I was, you know, I was being probably guilty of of, of uh, making overgeneralizations about women's history and about the importance of women, and, and realizing that. To, to tell his story, it, it was it needed to be a complete picture, and his marriage, his relationship with LaSalle was incredibly important and very insightful into who he was, not just as a, a man, as a husband, but as a general. So I 
started to see that that there, there were that these these boundaries that separate military history from other types of history were very artificial, and that really opened up a whole new world to me. I think that's a very promising development. Military history is marginalized itself within the academy. Uh, I, I'm sure you would agree when it focuses on the the military events to the exclusion of their social contexts, and it. it there are many schools that don't that don't teach military history. If, if you say you're a military historian, you can often get that sideways look uh, from the more cutting edge uh, postmodern people. But the best military history has to break down those barriers. Uh, it has to encompass women's history and social history and economic and political history as well. Would you not agree? Yes, I, I agree completely. And like I said, I still think that there's a lot of work to be done. And I think in the field of civil war, it's starting to happen. There has been a, a shift, especially in the last five to ten years, but I think there's still a lot that, keep, that could happen. And in really opening up the field and uh, getting it away from just what, you know, a lot of folks refer to as sort of drums and trumpets uh, type of narrowly focused military history. The When women in the war are considered, uh, traditionally there's a sort of tokenist approach where you get a chapter out of a book or uh, one panel out of a gallery in a museum that talks about the women who were perhaps nurses or spies uh, or perhaps uh, wives of, of some of the famous leaders. And other than that, you don't hear about them at all. You don't. And what what interests me about Pickett, and it's also, it's, it's continued in some of the new things I'm working on, is, you know, to, to realize that these men, um, whether they're generals or just common soldiers, their worlds weren't as divided. I mean, they constantly, of course, were conscious of their identity as fathers and husbands and brothers. Uh, their family connection with with women was constant in their motivation to join, to fight, to stay, to desert. Um, so, again, I, it, it's a really artificial division to say, well, what happened on the battlefield had nothing to do with what was going on on the home front, what was going on with these with families. And, and of course, as any civil war historian knows, one of the some of the best sources are are letters, soldiers' letters. And who were they writing to? Whom were they writing to? They were writing to their to, to women. <laughs> and so, and and that's just been sort of overlooked. You know, the fact that 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 these women and and bringing the the women side of it, the other side of the even just when it comes down to the letters, this kind of correspondence, this dialogue going on between men and women. Uh, so again, it, it's we sort of have to make up, I think, for all this uh, uh, this overlooking of, of gender and, and women in particular in the, in the study of the war. And, and of course, one of the, the mechanical problems there is that while the women or men at home who received letters from, from the front uh, would treasure them and save them, the soldiers were not in a position to carry reams of letters around with them. So we have so many letters from Civil War soldiers, and we have so few letters from the home to the soldier. That's true. The, that the women's true. point of view. Yeah. But I think uh, I've been surprised. I mean, I think there's more and more being published that either a women's diaries or letters or just the combined correspondence that I've been uh, pleasantly surprised that there more is coming to light. But you're right that it's just been a... Uh, some of it was deliberate. Some of it was sort of the practical nature of being... A, 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 in the field, as you, as you point out, that, that the men just couldn't keep these letters. 
and we don't have as much. No, the um, there was. I'm trying to recall the general's name now. The uh, uh, commanded a division on the Union side in 12th Corps, Gettysburg. It's just I'll remember it in a second. Everybody listening can think of who I'm talking about. Uh, but he. His letters were published in 1960, and I was reading them recently and struck by the introduction where the editor said, I've published all the important military stuff. I've left out the parts where he talks about his family and wife and kids. You don't want to read that. Exactly. So many words. And, of course, that's just what you want to read because it makes him human. Right. And, and you want to read the military things as well. But, but a generation ago, historians just routinely deleted that material. And today that's uh, much more of what we look for to try to get a more complete picture. Right. Well, we will try to get a still fuller picture when we come back in a few moments to talk more with Leslie J. Gordon on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 